Hi, guys. This is Steve from Paragus Northwoods over in Ely. At Paragus Northwoods today, we're all about canoeing and wilderness camping. Our store on Ely's Main Street is open every day, year-round. We must have everything a paddler needs because we're really at the end of the road, the last stop before the Boundary Waters Wilderness. Our outfitting department, I believe, is the best you'll find. We use all new canoes and all new gear every summer. We not only rent and outfit, but Nancy and I and our amazing staff, we're all paddlers, and we all take canoe trips in the Boundary Waters every summer. Paragus, the store, the catalog, and the canoe trip outfitting are all online at paragus.com. Please stop by when you're in Ely. We're your friends up north at the end of the road, working every day for our customers and to keep our watershed pristine for future generations to enjoy as we have. This is the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. This is the wilderness that Dave and I were both introduced to as kids. You know, our first wilderness camping experience were in the Boundary Waters. And in summer, you wake up, you swim through the lake, you have breakfast, then you can relax, you can go paddling, you can go hiking. We've done this trip before to Horseshoe Lake, and I remember catching walleye there before. I went on a canoe trip in the Boundary Waters, and it's, it was really cool. It was my first time. The route from Ram Lake back to Poplar Lake with, with no packs, with, with only a day pack, uh, we take it in one day. Well, you can look to Venus, you can look to Mars. I will set my sights by the northern star and in the deep dark blue come the northern lights. Oh, and in the deep dark blue come the northern lights. Welcome to episode 45 of the WTIP Boundary Waters Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Baxley. And I'm Joe Fredericks. It is summertime in the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. Temperatures are rising. The water is at a perfect temperature to cool off from the summer heat. And today, we're having some follow-up follow-up episode uh, that's a theme to two of the most prominent stories or one of the most prominent stories and one of the most prominent themes uh, that we've heard in recent episodes a gentleman by the name you're probably familiar with now if you know the podcast alex falconer from the save the boundary waters campaign trail runner extraordinaire who accomplished something beyond impressive earlier uh this this summer on a recent episode you heard from contributor Lindsay gow who uh, paddled into the wilderness for Alex uh, to support his trail run uh, through the wilderness. It was a record-breaking, record-setting uh, event, and uh, it was a real community event for our now trail-running community in the wilderness. And as promised, Lindsay followed up with Alex Falconer to hear about the entirety, the run in its entirety, so we're going to hear the rest of that conversation later in today's episode. Right. And up front, we're going to hear a follow-up to our conversation about wilderness. This comes from the Listening Point Foundation. And when we were over in Ely at Sig Olson's home and the property on Burnside Lake, Listening Point itself, you and I talked about what's wilderness mean to us, to other people, to Sig Olson, the legacy of that. What's that definition of that to us? 
We really dive into that today. It's an in-depth approach because that question was was on our minds. We wanted more opinions and thoughts on it, some research. So we're going to hear that today. And even more than a follow-up, this whole concept of what is wilderness, it's an evolving concept. It's something that's evolving in all the spheres that it that it's relevant, both in our personal experiences of this place and also in politics and in... Forest management. Exactly. And in, uh, in laws and in culture and community. So this is just adding to the complexity of that conversation. And I'm really excited to just continue to unfold this idea of wilderness. Right. We don't set out necessarily to have any answers today. Once again, it's just a overview of some history about the Boundary Waters uh, from a century ago to where we are now. So a whole in-depth approach. I want to chat briefly about, uh, you mentioned some summertime heat. Oof, indeed. <laughs> Had some warm days in the Boundary Waters, uh, probably near record-setting days in 2021. Memorably warm days, 90-degree uh, heat in the Boundary Waters, something that's not too common, too fairly common. I mean, you'll get that over toward the Ely area, but eastern edge of the wilderness where you and I reside near Grand Marais and the Gunflint Trail, Arrowhead Trail, Sawbill, not too common to see mid-90s. Especially this early in the season. You know, we think we typically think about August for that kind of heat, but man, we're, we got in early this year. Well, I had a day where I learned how to utilize my t-shirt as a cooling down instrument. Ooh, enlighten us, please. Well, I thought about jumping in after a steep portage and just keeping my shirt on. This was one of those 90 degree days, you know, it's so hot, I'm just going to fall into the lake, basically. I mean, you were pra probably practically wet uh, yeah. already. I, w I was pouring sweat. My cap was just wet. I mean, my face getting into my glasses. And uh, so instead, I took my shirt off, dumped it into the lake, then put it on. How'd it work? Fantastic. There was a nice <laughs> breeze. And it was just, it changed everything. Yeah, I mean, it's such an important thing. I'm mean, Just from a safety consideration for this time of year, I mean, you got to regulate your body temperature when you're out there because mm -hmm. you don't want to get heat exhaustion or worse, heat stroke. And, you know, way to utilize the tools you had at your disposal, buddy. It, I felt like a genius in the moment. Uh, it doesn't sound quite as impressive as I describe it to you now, but it worked and I felt mm -hmm. great. And it kept me moving down the lake. The primary objective on that particular outing was to find some walleye for the 4th of July weekend. I'd made some promises once again of uh, I shall go catch the fish and deliver for the neighborhood type thing. I feel like, Joe, this you're, I feel like you make these promises as a way of ensuring to yourself that you do catch fish. <laughs> like somehow if you promise somebody fish, then you're more likely to catch them. Right. Uh, doesn't always work that way. You just hear about it when it w does work. Exactly. <laughs> well, uh, you know, it sounds like you made some neighbors real happy this 4th of July weekend. I did. I was actually taken aback because 90 degrees, and it was like 88 degrees at 8 a.m. I wasn't out there at, you know, midday necessarily. I Eventually I was, but I went out early trying to beat the heat. And it was just warm throughout that whole weekend. If anybody was up over the 4th of July, you know what I'm talking about. And 
So there I was trolling along, and it's maybe now 9.30, 10, temp keeps going up, getting toward 90. I paddled probably 30 feet. Wham! Trolling a rapala, rod bench to the back. You never, you know, is it snagged up? Oh, nope, no, no, that's a fish. Yes. Get, get one on the stringer, nice walleye, feeling good. Okay, all right, got that first one. Get the line back out. 10 feet. Wham! <laughs> oh, wow, okay, something's happening here. Stringer, I got two on. Wow, there it goes again. <laughs> like, what in the world's going on? Like, all in the first five minutes? Yes, turned into just an absolutely crazy day of fishing, and I was able to then... Uh, escape, beat the heat because I didn't even have to paddle down into like the typical area where we fish on this lake. That's kind of the target zone. I had six before I even got there. Wow. But were you disappointed? Not really. Not really because it was only going to get hotter. Mm-hmm. I had a ways to go, a portage, a long paddle, another, some more paddling, uh, once I was outside the wilderness. So I was fine getting, and I could take my time. You know, I filleted the fish out, and keeping them cool was a challenge in and of itself. I kept changing the water in different Ziploc bags, keep the meat from spoiling, because it was now getting into the 90s, and uh, just did what I could to keep the the fish fresh, which worked out great. I mean, there's still the boundary water, so the water was plenty cold to keep the fish fresh. Well, Joe, I always love hearing, especially the stories of you actually catching fish, uh and I, I hope that this is a trend that just keeps going for you, man. Yeah, it's just, it was marvelous to be out there, you know. There it was, the 4th of July weekend, nobody around. Had pretty much the whole place, even a pretty popular uh, entry point, for the most part, to myself on a day trip. Saw some people coming back out, and and it was all good, though. Everybody was just kind of hanging out in the water, beating the heat, and uh, no, I was just great, grateful to be out there. Well, as usual, the best way to spend any bit of free time is getting out in your canoe and paddling, especially in the boundary waters. So with that, why don't we get into this unfolding conversation about the wilderness and hear where it takes us. When you hear Tom McCann talk about Minnesota's boundary waters canoe area wilderness, he's quick to point out an easily overlooked sense of balance encompassing the area. You know, there is an order to things in these wild areas. Um, you can see how things progress from young to old, and you can see how, you know, the seasons change and waters flow. And, but then there's also the chaos um, in itself for its own purposes. Everything that we look at as a disharmony or a disorder, that that disharmony to us is is really part of the harmonic system that's there. So trees blow down, trees burn up, areas uh, are eroded. Um, things happen out there in their own way, under their own plan, for for its own reason. There are certain wild places on this planet that still tug at the imaginations and adventurous spirits of those who visit them. Minnesota's Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness is one such place. It is a setting of natural balance, often romanticized by visions of white pines, singing loons, and breathtaking sunsets. In turn, this is a harsh landscape, 
with winter temperatures that often dip to 30 below zero or colder. With such brutal cold, it's not uncommon for the 1,000-plus lakes inside the wilderness area to be covered in ice for more than half the year. When the waters do open, there are summer winds and fires and all manner of insects and wild creatures that can make life challenging for human visitors. And yet, come for the challenge they do. In fact, this is the most visited wilderness area in the entire nation. On average, approximately 150,000 people visit the BWCAW each year. This is a wilderness that McCann, a retired Forest Service employee who lives in Grand Marais on Minnesota's North Shore, says speaks directly to the core of what wild places offer the human spirit. As you move, as you travel, uh, there's unlimited opportunities to feel this level of sensitivity rising, to feel your own perceptions deepening, and that recognizing that the earth itself, the landscape around you is basically good, is a transforming experience. Though it is now frequented year-round by visitors from all over the world, this was a land that was long inhabited by Minnesota's first residents and indigenous communities. This history dates back some 10,000 years to when Paleo-Indians hunted and gathered here. Over the course of thousands of years, other native populations moved in and out of the region, including the Ojibwe people. Despite the comings and goings of various human inhabitants, the one constant in the history of the area is that the Boundary Waters region has always remained sparsely populated. For his part, McCann is no stranger to the land and water located in the BWCAW. Like many who visit here, a canoe is his preferred method of transportation. Some visitors opt for hiking trails and carrying backpacks, while others yet prefer skis and snowshoes and winter travel. Regardless of the season, when he does travel through the wilderness, McCann often chooses to travel great distances across the seemingly endless chain of lakes, rivers, and portage trails. One of the virtues of the Boundary Waters Canary Wilderness is that it is a large landscape, and it's large enough to have many ecosystems that one can experience and observe as they travel through on a canoe route or a hiking trail. And observing those ecosystems in different stages of their cycles is very informative, I think, because it shows how dynamic uh, the landscape, the forests, the water systems, and the weather systems are, and, and how the, they work together to rapidly change the face of reality, if you will. To fully understand McCann's fascination with the Boundary Waters, and the fact he and hundreds of thousands of others are allowed to paddle a canoe through this landscape in relative solitude, one has to sort through the pages of history to see the full picture. The BWCAW encompasses more than a million acres of pristine and remote wilderness in the far reaches of northeastern Minnesota. It is managed by the United States Forest Service, and among the wilderness area's unique attributes, at least when it comes to management, is the fact motors of any kind are not allowed. This is a largely quiet space, inhabited by moose, wolves, bears, and other species that tend to captivate the human spirit. These wild creatures roam through a collection of dense forests, 
deep lakes and thousands of flowing waterways. I'm out here now in the Boundary Waters. We're at a campsite on Pine Lake, on the eastern side of the wilderness. Beautiful campsite. Checking things out as we settle in. Here's a just a beautiful red pine. Probably 150 years old at least. Just based on the size of this massive pine as I'm staring up toward a clear blue sky. Tent set up right over there. Perfect flat spot. Go check things out down by the lake. Winds are picking up just a little bit this afternoon. All kinds of spruce and cedar lining the shoreline here. The water's so clear, as I'm looking out to pine, I can see rocks way deep down, 15, 20 feet deep. Really drops off deep right by shore here. A little bay over here where we're thinking that it'd be a good spot to maybe see some moose later. And it's just a nice little spot down here that we've got tucked out. Views to the west. Looks like the poplar trees are just starting to get their leaves and bloom. Beautiful day here in the Boundary Waters. Where conservation is concerned, the area's pathway toward becoming a federally protected wilderness started in the 1920s and reached a conclusion of sorts in 1978 with the passage of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness Act. McCann is equally as fascinated by canoeing as he is in learning about those who came before him and who worked tirelessly to protect this pristine wilderness. One name of specific interest to McCann is Arthur Carhart. Along with famed conservationist and author Aldo Leopold, Carhart was an early architect of what are now classified as designated wilderness areas in the United States. There are now more than 800 such areas spread across the country, including the Boundary Waters Canoe Area. And while Leopold is famous for his writings, including a Sand County Almanac, Carhart is not a name that leaps to the forefront of many canoeists who enter the BWCAW. Canoe country legends like Sigurd Olson, the root beer lady Dorothy Moulter, or Gunflint Trail icon Justine Kerfoot did more writing in this region and had more written about them than Carhart did and likely ever will. However, Carhart's influence and a specific journey he took in 1921 to the Boundary Waters literally shaped how the federal government and the American public defined designated wilderness in the United States. It was the Forest Service who directed Carhartt to Superior National Forest in 1921 to tour the area and report his findings to the federal government. They were interested in how the area could best be managed and were counting on Carhartt's experience in the backcountry to assist in their decision-making process. Carhartt traveled a route from Ely toward what is now the Sawbill Trail area. Carhartt was fresh off a similar expedition to Colorado near Trapper's Lake. The Forest Service sent Carhartt to the mountain lake to survey a road that would likely lead to development around the lakeshore. However, after completing the survey, Carhartt made the recommendation to the Forest Service to not build the road, but rather keep it protected and preserved as a wilderness area. 
During his visit to Superior National Forest in 1921, Carhart came away with a similar recommendation. Leave it alone, he said. This included abandoning plans to build a road connecting Ely with the Gunflint Trail. Ann Schwaller is the Wilderness Program Manager on Superior National Forest. Schwaller uses history as her guide to navigate many modern-day uses for what types of human activity can and should be allowed in the BWCAW. She is well-versed in the history of early wilderness pioneers in America, including Leopold and his friend Carhart. Here, Schwaller reads a section of a letter from Carhart to Leopold that was written in 1919 as they explored what the term wilderness could mean in terms of forest management. He says, these areas can never be restored to their original condition after we have invaded them. And the great value lying as it does in natural scenic beauty should be available not for the small group, but for the greatest population. Time will come when these scenic spots where nature has been allowed to remain unmarmed will be some of the most highly prized scenic features of the country. So this was written in 1919. And um, I just think that's, that's fabulous. And you can, you can totally see where Aldo Leopold has um, also made an impression on Carhartt because Leopold is, you know, famous for saying the greatest good for the greatest number of people. To honor Carhartt's important trip to the Boundary Waters region in 1921, McCann and six other canoe adventurers set out in the cold autumn months to retrace his steps. They made their trip in the fall of 2020. Their journey covered more than 94 miles and involved dozens of portages, including one nearly two miles in length that was overgrown and essentially forgotten in the pages of time. The group started their trip on Farm Lake on September 25th, and it ended about a week later at Silver Rapids, the very same location Carhartt had started and finished his 1921 expedition. If the law of the land followed a simple pattern of who arrived first, all of the Quetico Superior region belongs to the native communities who first walked the earth here. History, movement, migration, and treaties have told otherwise. Still, many of the same reasons people celebrate the BWCAW and Quetico Provincial Park in modern times were always ingrained in the lifestyle of the indigenous communities who call this area their home. Buju, I'm Anna Disha. I am a Grand Portage band member and lifelong resident of the community. You know, growing up, that was just what we knew of life is, um, you know, we would go fishing in all parts of the year, fall, spring, summer, and winter. Uh, my dad was just a really awesome hunter, and so we would go out. We would spend a lot of time when we were little just, you know, kind of tagging along with him. And um, in the winter, he trapped, and he taught us how to do that as well. So it was very much a part of our identity growing up and just a part of our lifestyle. The animals and plants and the land on which they grow were so ingrained in the Deshaw household that Anna never tasted beef until she went to school in Grand Marais. You know, I had always just grown up eating moose meat. And so I think, you know, an example like that, it just really speaks to this wasn't something that, you know, we would do recreationally or just for fun, but it was a very key element in who we are as people and just how we lived our lives. Anna's father, Norman Deshaw, was the longtime tribal chair for the Grand Portage Band of Lake Superior Chippewa. 
Norman died in February 2019 after serving as tribal chair for 27 years. Throughout his life and during his decades as tribal chair, Norman was a strong advocate for treaty rights in the history of the indigenous population in the Boundary Waters region. That history was very important to her family growing up, Anna says, and while her father worked with groups like the Forest Service toward many common goals, Anna describes the band's relationship with the state and federal governments as complicated, though there are shared values when it comes to protecting the land and waters in the BWCAW. Yeah, they're complicated. They collide sometimes, right? Treaty rights and wilderness protection laws sometimes collide. The Boundary Waters is within this 1854 ceded territory. So at that time, when the signatories of the band signed the treaty, there was no foresight that potentially this huge chunk of land where people lived would potentially be hindered or be vulnerable to this legislation that could potentially hinder access, right? So you're thinking about this is an area where people lived. You know, we're talking about places where people have family connections to, ancestral connections to, where they learn to harvest their food, harvest their medicines, where people are buried, you know, where they have had um, the ceremonial grounds for generations. And so I think the motivation is just a bit more than wanting to go to a certain spot. It's talking about, you know, this is where this is where we have lived. This was the agreement that we came to in 1854, and that's what should be honored to this day. According to the Minnesota Historical Society, the Second Treaty of La Pointe in 1854 ceded most Ojibwe land on the northern and western shores of Lake Superior to the U.S. government. In return, BAM members on the established reservations received annual payments and a guarantee that they could continue to hunt and fish throughout the large region, including what is now the BWCAW. However, in reviewing historical documents related to the formation of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness that were assembled by the United States Forest Service, the Minnesota House of Representatives, and even wilderness advocacy groups like the Save the Boundary Waters campaign, there's typically little or even no mention of the 1854 treaty or of any history relating to the indigenous communities. The Forest Service, for example, starts their BWCAW timeline with Carhartt's paddle from 1921 and his subsequent publication called Preliminary Prospectus, an outline plan for the recreational development of the Superior National Forest. A 2004 document printed by the Minnesota House of Representatives starts its chronology of historical actions for the BWCAW in 1857, when the United States Congress granted land to support schools in the University of Minnesota. Noting that a year later in 1858, Minnesota was admitted to the Union and therefore received ownership of the beds of navigable waters in the Boundary Waters region. Not once in the House's timeline that stretches 146 years is there any mention of the Anishinaabe or indigenous communities. DeShaw says there are elements of historical trauma for band members when it comes to analyzing the history 
of what is now the most visited wilderness area in the United States. That being the case, she also speaks with a sense of optimism about moving forward toward common goals such as clean water. So who manages the land really goes back to who controls the land, and then who controls the resource, and then that means who controls the people. There's generational trauma with these things, and you can look at the Boundary Waters as one example of when this happened, and there are so many examples throughout history, right? But, you know, to to the point of having a wilderness um, and this huge area of pristine and protected land, I, I would agree that's a good thing, you know? Um, it's important to have these areas where we can continue to practice our treaty rights because that argument can be made as well. Well, if, you know, the water gets polluted and, you know, these environmental protections aren't in place, then where are you going to practice your treaty rights anyway, right? Paula Marie Powell is a Cook County resident who grew up on the Canadian side of Saginaw Lake at the end of the Gunflint Trail. Portions of SAG, as the lake is commonly referred to, sit within both the BWCAW and Quetico boundaries. Powell is a descendant of the Lac La Croix First Nations community in Ontario. Her great-grandmother was Mary Ottertail from the Lac La Croix First Nation, and they planted the family's roots to the region on Saganagans Lake, another massive body of water located just north of SAG and Quetico. Powell says her family's deep history in the Boundary Waters region was always connected in a deep way to the land and water where they lived. Her family has run trap lines, fished and hunted here for more than a century. Powell says that designating a place like the Boundary Waters as an official wilderness area changed not just how people could recreate in the place where she grew up, but who could live there as well, regardless of the color of their skin. What I remember hearing about when when the BWCA became the BWCA, I remember hearing a lot of people having been kicked out of their cabins and stuff, Indigenous people and white people, and how that, you know, that was really unfair to the people that lived there. Looking back on the history of the BWCAW, Indigenous communities were not alone when it comes to people feeling the federal government forever changed their way of life with the wilderness designation. Motor restrictions aside, many people who owned land in the area had their cabins that stood within the wilderness boundaries bought by the federal government. Those cabins were then burned to the ground, or in some cases removed, after passage of the 1964 and 1978 Wilderness Acts. However necessary the wilderness designation might prove to be in order to keep the BWCAW pristine, it stirred a sense of bitterness for some, Powell says. Yeah, I think that there's a purpose to it, but I mean, there's definitely some resentment, or was, and a lot of times, as you probably know up here, that it just, it seems like our, the rules and regulations are being made by people that that maybe don't know, you know, what's happening on the ground, and I, I think there was some of that, too, because a lot of, a lot of decisions, you know, legislative decisions are made by people you know, in meeting rooms <laughs> and not the people that are actually affected by them. 
I think that that's where some of that resentment came from, too. Though Carhartt is an early-day architect for wilderness conservation, the name Sigurd Olson is likely more familiar to most visitors of the BWCAW. Olson spent many years living on the edge of the Boundary Waters in his home near Ely. He was a prolific author and worked tirelessly to advocate for wilderness protection across the country, including his home turf in what would eventually become the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness. I had the good fortune of being selected for an artist residency by the Listening Point Foundation in late April and early May in 2021. I spent four days at the home of Sigurd Olson and also visited Listening Point on Burntside Lake many times during my stay. I reflected on the words of Anna DeShaw and Paula Marie Powell, as well as personnel from the United States Forest Service and those of Tom McCann. While producing this documentary, I had asked each of them what wilderness means to them. After hearing their stories, it seems that the term wilderness can and perhaps should mean different things to different people. It should be understood that for some people, wilderness is a concept, not a place. Understanding this, and by weaving their stories together, what emerged is the intrinsic value of the Boundary Waters. By listening to all of their stories, it became clear that the reasons people cherish natural wild space is because it offers a place of connection. It is a link to a different chapter in the human experience. For some, the link represents a truer reflection of what life on this planet is potentially all about. Ultimately, it seems, no matter the reason people come to the wilderness, no matter what they seek, at the very least there is space to explore the unknowns that rest within. Mike Cruteau is the Gunflint District Ranger on Superior National Forest. On the local level, he's the boss for all things that happen on the far east side of Minnesota's Boundary Waters. As challenging conversations take place across the country about racial equality following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May 2020, Cruteau says it's important that the Forest Service and the outdoor recreation industry understand that it's important to have age, race, and gender diversity and equal access when it comes to places like the Boundary Waters. The Forest Service continues to do outreach in areas like the Twin Cities to encourage and provide pathways for young people, regardless of their age, race, or economic background, to visit the BWCAW. The value of wilderness and what it provides for not only you know ecosystem services, providing clean water, clean air, all those things, but the value that it has to us humans um, has been shared for a long time. And it should not be for just one group. It is um, America's pristine highest value land, so to speak, that, you know, should be accessible to all to experience those benefits of being out in the, out in the wilderness. The things that, that I greatly enjoy and value about being in wild places, I want to be able to provide that for anyone. The Forest Service has been collecting data through surveys and various studies since the late 1960s regarding visitation numbers in the BWCAW. 
The surveys, one completed as recently as 2007, were focused on certain aspects of who enters America's most visited wilderness, Cruteau says. Some of those surveys, those studies were, um, you know, looking at age and, and gender and use patterns and the type of use, um, not so much on the on the racial racial diversity and, and demographics, um, unfortunately, but we know that, you know, um, you know, race, racial diversity is is low in the in the boundary waters as well and then what we're also finding is um through time the the age class of the visitors um is increasing through time so fewer younger people are are getting out and that's a that's a um that's a big eye-opener i think for us in that um you know we we need to encourage young visitors to the wilderness to um, help them understand the the value, um, you know, to get them out and and tr- um, you know, training, help them experience, um, teaching them wilderness ethics and um, the value of these precious lands that we have, um, not only here in, in Minnesota but across the across the nation. Topics like access and diversity among those who visit the wilderness aside. There are a number of threats to the boundary waters that could reshape these treasured woods and waters in the future. A proposed copper nickel mine in the BWCA watershed near Ely is among the active threats. Groups like the Save the Boundary Waters campaign work tirelessly to educate the public about threats posed by the proposed Twin Metals mining project near Birch Lake just outside the wilderness. Another threat is climate change which could literally reshape the forest landscape and wipe out treasured fish species such as lake trout that love the region's clear, cold waters. When Tom McCann and six others retraced the canoe route of Arthur Carhart nearly 100 years after the wilderness pioneer paddled these waters in 1921, there was little difference in the landscape give or take a logging operation that took place between the Wilderness Act that passed in 1964. In wilderness settings, there are connections people can make to the land, regardless of their age, race, or gender, by walking in the footsteps of those who have come before us. Despite the difficulties that went into protecting this landscape known as the Boundary Waters, and the many challenges yet to come, when someone paddles the same route he did in the fall of 2020 and that Carhartt did in 1921, McCann hopes the area looks and feels the same. Yeah, it's very satisfying to realize that that the landscape that he traveled is still there, the experiences that he had are still available, that the, the consciousness and awareness and perceptions that were deepening within Arthur Carhartt were available to myself and the crew that I was with. Um, moving up beyond that into, into a sense of deep appreciation for all the things that led up to Carhartt showing up on the Superior, to all of the um, continued activities and management within this area that we call the Boundary Waters Canoe Area you know, with all of its um, its own histories. But then the fact that, you know, there is this wild land that's under its own guise and that as it looks, it will be allowed to move 
through its own journey without all of the manipulations and filters that humans want to put on a landscape to make it more livable. Support for this project comes from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. So there we go, Matthew. Like uh, we heard in the piece from a number of different voices, some of our reflection actually from the Listening Point Foundation we put into that segment because uh, it just fits naturally. And uh, I do want to give a shout out to uh, KFAI Radio in, in Minneapolis for uh, their support in making that uh, piece possible there. Uh, essentially supporting the podcast through that. So thanks to them and, and uh, the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund as well. Yeah, there's some great partners that are committed to uh, making sure that these stories are getting told. And it's our job to make sure you hear those stories. And now we're going to continue with completing the story of Alex Falconer's record-setting run across the Boundary Waters Canoe Area Wilderness Uh, talking with Lindsay Gow about how it all shaped up in the end. So Alex, you ran both the Border Route and Kekakabic Trail in the Boundary Waters uh, canoe area in one go. Uh, Can you tell our listeners what inspired you to do this run? Um, The run was really inspired just as a way to bring awareness of the the sulfur or copper mining threat uh, that the Boundary Waters faces to... Um, trail runners in in general. So I've been doing this project now for for a little bit of running, well, for a couple of years of running all the major trails in the in the Boundary Waters um, as a way to both just highlight that the trails exist, and then in all the social media and some of the interviews is talking about uh, the threat that the, of sulfur or copper mining, um, and try to get people signed up and aware of this issue. And then it was kind of the the big final project of this was to run the border out and the keck together and in, in in one shot and to really make kind of a, a big deal about it um just to do what we can to just try to make a splash and 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 get people to see and hear about it and also then learn about the wilderness and why it should be protected and so how long have you been i guess aware of the the issue of the threat of mining for the boundary waters yeah the the mineral leases that are the ones that could potentially be developed into a pretty massive sulfur or copper mine. There's a renewal period where there wasn't a mine in place, so the companies have to apply to renew them. And that happened in 2013. And then the people in Ely, Minnesota found out about it and, and started this campaign to kind of dig into the issue, learn about it, and decided they didn't want this to happen and then built up the campaign. So it's really, it's been going on for almost seven, eight years. Uh, and as far as an actual organized campaign itself, it's been a little bit over six years now. Back to the to the run, we last spoke, you had just finished one out of four marathons, correct? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. <laughs> and we were at the Clearwater Lake Portage um, to West Pike on the Border Route tra- Trail. Mm-hmm. And so could you tell the listeners what, what you remember happening kind of after that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there's definitely a little bit of a, some foggy, hazy memories in there after, especially going overnight and then into the next day. But um, from where we left off, uh, so Peyton Thomas had been running with me along with Brendan Davis, who was the photographer that was along. Um, and then uh, Claire Gallagher joined out and Claire 
paddle out with you guys. So from there, uh, we ran um, what I think is, uh, not I think, is that is my favorite part of the border route trail because then you start getting up into the Palisades overlooking Rose Lake and into Canada and over Mountain Lake. And so just really, really, really beautiful area. Um, and so, but it's, it's slow going because it's the constant grind of just up and down, up and down. Um, the, the trail itself is really in good shape. So if people are thinking, hey, you know, I want to go, I want to go hike this thing or even run it. Um, it's a lot, it's a lot more uh, passable than it was even last year. So the, the trail crews are out and that's, that's pretty awesome um, to see. Let's see, trying to think, it was pretty hot that day. I think when we met, you know, it was right in the middle of the day, it was 80 degrees and humid and we were a little bit uh, starved for water. And, uh, but then around when we got to the Rose Lake waterfall aid station that we had set up, that we had a couple campaign staff there, um, Ingrid and Megan, who are on our, on our team, the, uh, the, the weather just plummeted and then it started to rain. <laughs> And so I think it was, it was, we didn't know the temperature, but we were told it was about 43 degrees, which is cold, uh, especially when it's raining. And then it was just wet for the next 15 miles out of the, out of the wilderness until we got to Loon Lake Road, which is the first intersection that, uh, car intersection that crosses the trail. So um, where Erica and the kids met me. <laughs> so yeah, it, it was, it was raining. We were, we were cold. We took a wrong turn toward Crab Lake uh, and then got back on on trail again and and just kept going but got through it i think it was it was a little bit dicey just because the cold and the wet but we had rain jackets on and and dry clothes underneath that so we were insulated well enough to just keep moving and stay warm just by movement itself um but yeah so that was just a that was the only really dicey part of the journey uh was just the rainstorm and then the foliage was just wet and dripping the whole time so even though when it stopped raining we were still just getting showered on uh, so oh yeah just a, I bet. Relentless wet. and that part of the trail too is it's pretty thick with alders that are kind of um coming in and choking up the trail a little bit so then the leaves is pushing through and the trekking poles that we had acted more or less like a snow plow just like trying to carve a hole through the through the the bush and then we just get wet on so um <laughs> but it's always it's always a it's always a a, a journey in the boundary waters one of the things about wilderness nature's going to throw something at you and you got to keep going. That is very true. It's always, it's always an adventure in the boundary waters. <laughs> and you, you ran, it took you 38 hours, correct? Yep. To run. And how many miles was it total again around? It's about 110. I think my Garmin at the end said 108, but so in the ballpark. <laughs> okay. And so can you kind of set the scene, what it was like for you when you finish and kind of what it felt like to accomplish this really amazing goal? Yeah. Well, it's kind of in two stages, finishing the border out itself and then realizing that just went through this giant trail that had, you know, 12,000 feet of elevation gain over between 65 and 70 miles is one thing. And then to realize, Oh, I've got another 40 miles to go. Um, also at that time too, my stomach was starting to kind of reject food a bit to put it politely. Um, so, uh, had to overcome that and Kyle Patari, who was one of the other, uh, uh, elite trail runners that was out running with me and is really well-versed in how to get over stomach issues, really pushed food on me pretty hard, definitely more than I wanted to, but it, that really turned the tide as far as how I was feeling. Um, so we got done with the board route at, I think 4.30 to 5.00 AM, something like that. 
I took a very short five minute power nap. <laughs> um, was able to get some food down thanks to Kyle coaxing it in. And then uh, Kyle and a, and, a, and a friend, Matt and I took off for the rest of the keck or to, to, to complete the keck. And then it was you know 40 miles running most of the day on Sunday. Um, and the keck itself is a, is, it's a lot less elevation gain. Um, there's still some pretty significant climbs, uh, particularly right in the middle as you get toward where we had another aid station set up. Um, uh, and then after that, it's, it was relatively flat for about nine miles. And so we stopped again, ate some food, uh, just kept hydrating and, and eating okay. and gel packs throughout. And then kind of got toward the end. Um, it was pretty exciting because Erica and the kids met us on the other side. They got there just in the nick of time. There was a flat tire issue and some problems that they had to deal with too. So, uh, but they got through it. They got there. Um, uh, Claire, Brendan, Peyton, um, and Matt all, or Matt was already with us, but yeah, Claire, Brendan, Peyton all came out and met us with about a half mile to go. So we kind of had a big homecoming. The kids met me at about a quarter mile to go and they kind of led the way with Erica and had a mini parade just kind of exiting out on the other side. And it was, it was pretty exciting. A couple of our um, board members were there. Uh, some other people uh, that heard about it showed up. And so it was, it was a, kind of a mini welcome home celebration party at the end, which was really, really fun. Um, and then I got to sit down and not worry about <laughs> having to run anymore. <laughs> so that was nice. <laughs> I, I love that you're setting this like beautiful scene all celebratory and then you're just like and then I have to sit <laughs> and then I'm done <laughs> yeah 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 how were you feeling when you finished I I was feeling I think to my surprise and to everybody else who was like you're looking great like I finished excited smile um I was feeling really good um it took a bit in the middle of the keck to get over some serious tiredness. I mean, I was up for 38 hours and moving the entire time. So I was exhausted. So it was nice to kind of just stop <laughs> moving and just to kind of soak it all in. It was, it was pretty emotional to finish it. Uh, you know, I've had this, this project and this dream going on for almost three years. And so to finally just get it done and have it go as well as it possibly could have was great. Um, and so, uh, it was nice to just be surrounded by people that were supporting and were excited and cheering on that finish. And, and it just felt really, really good to, to be done. Well, congratulations on finishing the run. It's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> um, so what did you, after sitting down, what did you do after the run and kind of in the following days afterwards? Yeah. Well then, uh, we so the runners uh, and Erica and I all went to our family cabin, um, and we hung out for a day there just to kind of rest and recuperate. Uh, Kyle and and Claire are training for Western States Endurance Run. It's one of the, the biggest kind of marquee professional trail running uh, events, which is going to happen in about two and a half weeks now. Um, so they, so they're still very much in the mode of training. So they went for a run early in the morning. We have a sauna out there. So they, uh, did some heat training where they would just blast themselves in the sauna, uh, for much longer than it's comfortable and jump in the lake, go back. Um, so they, they took a couple turns doing that. 
slept again. And then we took a trip into the Boundary Waters for a couple of days. So, um, you know, they hadn't ever been there before. And I really wanted to give them the experience of <laughs> you ran through significant portions of it. So let's do the, the traditional uh, thing. And so we headed out um, through the Farm Lake entry point and found a site on an island on Clear Lake and just had a great time out there, um, <laughs> relaxed, uh, cooking food over the fire, you know, showed them the ropes on how to, how to portage and, and paddle and, and all that, listening to loons call at night. And uh, it was really, it was a really great way to kind of cap off the week to, to have a, a much more <laughs> relaxed Bondi Waters experience. Um, and, and they could see it for the way that most people experience the wilderness, you know, mm -hmm. water-based travel and, you know, canoeing and portaging and camping and, and just sleeping out um, uh, with nothing else going on. So that was, that was a great, a great way to end it all. And these runners it, it, that joined you, it was their first time in the Boundary Waters and to be able to experience it by both trail running, running, which you said in the last interview, I really liked it, like running through, uh, running through canoe country. Yeah. Um, and, and then getting to paddle that that's such a unique experience that a lot of people don't get to experience and they got to do both. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was really fortunate that it all came through and that they were able to come out. Um, you know, Claire and Kyle from, from Boulder and Colorado, uh, Boulder and Denver respectively. And, Peyton coming up from North Carolina. And so it was, it was really, it was just a special time to, to get together with these people and then experience it all in a couple of different ways. Um, and I, you know, we could just listen to their responses of just how quiet it was. And the, when they heard the first loon calls, um, that was just, uh, just really, really cool too, just to kind of see them experience it for the first time. I'm glad you mentioned about the quiet of the Boundary Waters because often when I take people into the Boundary Waters who have never been in, that is often a very uh, common comment of it's so quiet. I, I don't know if I've ever heard quiet like yeah. this before. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> no cars driving by, airplanes can't flow, uh, can't fly below a certain threshold. Um, so it's just, it's really, it's it's remarkable how how still it is. You just listen to wind in the trees and birds chirping and obviously a couple of mosquitoes, <laughs> but that's, that's what it is. And I want, I want to end our interview with one last question. Uh, what is your favorite thing about the Boundary Waters? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think mine is, well, I think it, it, it falls in line with the quiet. It's just the disconnectedness from modern life that it's very much a place where you can go and uh, be immersed in nothing but nature. You're not gonna get cell phone notifications. Um, you're not gonna have a car driving by like I just had outside my window just right now. I don't know if you heard that, sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the remote, quiet, isolated feeling. Um, and you know we typically go out with Eric and I and the kids, and it's just an absolute dedicated family time where there's nothing else going on that can possibly just even intercept any part of our, our day or our, our agenda. And so it's um, it's, a, it's a unique place to get to, just in that respect itself. Well said. Well said.
Well, thank you, Alex. And I'm sure, you know, this is your third time on the podcast now. So I'm sure we'll hear from you in the future as well. Great. Well, thanks so much for having me on and for following the journey. It's been fun. Yes. Thank you. Follow-up episode, Matthew. I think the theme was perfect for summertime, reflection, coming and going. A a lot to kind of process through in this episode, actually, following up. And I don't think that any of these have a a period at the end of them either. Those were maybe three periods, you know, to be continued, essentially. Yeah. You know, one thing I'm really excited about is, uh, from what I gather, learning about the trail running community through Alex and through some friends of mine here uh, on the edge of the wilderness is that you know, once somebody sets a record uh, on trails like this, then you know it, it becomes like a magnet, pulling in more runners to uh, to at least do that same uh, run, if not to beat the time. And I'm I'm so curious to see how uh, this trail running community starts to form uh, cohesion around all of these amazing trails that traverse the Boundary Waters, and uh, hopefully we'll, if you are one of those runners that's excited to get up here and uh, get on the trails in the wilderness doing some running, we'd love to hear from you, hear how that experience is. Right, bwcapodcast at gmail.com. That's how you can contact Matthew or I. If you have any thoughts about today's episode or some story ideas you want to send our way, we're getting a lot of feedback right now, engaging with our listeners, and we're really enjoying that. So uh, keep all those emails coming our way. As usual, thank you to everyone who's uh, making an effort to correspond with us directly, and especially thank you to you, our listeners. You are why we make the podcast. And thanks to our sponsors. Right, exactly. A lot of fun things happening still this summer. We're just kind of rolling into it right now, getting through that heat wave. A lot more uh, still to come on our calendar for some trips that we have planned, some outings, expeditions, ideas that we have. We're just having a great time putting this together for you. So thanks so much for for always listening. And uh, Matthew, what's that? You You were taking notes about my fishing hole. Give me that paper! No! No! Give me that paper! No! Get off me! Oh! I just sing when I paddle canoe Feeling not thinking if the strokes are true We're gonna get through to the other side Out in the night the waves beat the shore You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar Oh, roll me, rock me Firelight all around the campfire light, all around, all around, all around the campfire light.